We hear the warnings that leaving Afghanistan will create a vacuum that will be filled with the enemies of America, who will use their new power to plan and execute plots against the United States. But is this true? Are we creating a safe haven for terrorists? I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this episode of Insight to Action, I speak with John Burns, the Director of Education for Concerned Veterans for America, and Tyler Koteski, a Senior Policy Analyst with Americans for Prosperity, about what they call the safe haven myth. Here we go. John Burns, Tyler Koteski, once again, welcome back to the podcast. John, if uh, at any point during this you need to take shelter from that thunderstorm, you let us know, and uh, Tyler will uh, will finish it while you retreat to your safe space. I, I'm happy that you're willing to do that for me. Thanks. Uh, I may <laughs> have to I may have to break up a fight between my nervous dogs who don't like thunderstorms, uh, even before taking shelter. So I understand that so l- there are. There's a lot of realism outside my door. <laughs> I can hear the thunder. It must be uh, must be a good one. There are two minds when it comes to uh, foreign policy. It seems uh, I've experienced uh, conversations with both of them. The first is generally the you know what, just bring them all home. We got no business being over there anyway. Just bring them all home. And the second one seems to be, well, if we don't fight them there, we're going to end up fighting them here. My question to you both is, how do you respond to those folks who say, look, when we look at 9-11, we can see if we don't fight them there, we're just going to end up dealing with them here. What's what's your response to that, John? And then, Tyler, if you want to jump in. There's just so much to unpack in that. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can we can talk about. So I'm just going to kind of set the table, uh, and then we can go through some of these things. There, There's, you know, first of all, there is um, – the myth of the safe haven, right? And if you think about terrorist attacks since 2001, they, they've happened without the terrorists having a, a safe haven. Um, you, you can also think about how we're conducting these wars, supposedly fighting them over there. Um, you know, and we're, 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 we're talking about countering terrorists who could hurt us here, but we're primarily doing that with a strategy of counterinsurgency over there. Um, and, and when you do counterinsurgency poorly, you can tend to create more enemies than you actually solve for. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, Afghanistan and, and Syria and, and Yemen and, and Somalia and the places that we're in, they're not the only failed states in the world. Um, so there's no possible way that we could secure every potential place on the globe where terrorists could find a safe haven um, if they sought one out there. And then, you know, on top of that, there's the problem of state sponsored rather than uh, or state enabled rather than, um, you know, failed state based terrorism. So um, overall, you know, the idea that we're fighting them over there um, so that we don't have to fight them here, maybe it made sense in, in the spring of 2002. It doesn't make any sense in the summer of 2021. Tyler? Yeah, and I, I think you're, you're right on the money there, John. And, and kind of in a broader strategic sense, it's, it's not like we're saying we have to... I don't think people who favor realism and restraint are saying that we just have to pretend threats don't exist or be... Uh, deployed all over the world, constantly fighting everything that could possibly be a threat. Um, you know, if there's there's a, a middle path of making sure that your your core national interests are protected, you know, and that's the our our territorial integrity, our uh, 
conditions of our prosperity and what keeps the the economy flowing and our standard of living high and then you know also just the kind of fundamental uh liberal democratic system that that undergirds the the strength of our society right and and uh we can certainly be monitoring threats uh from you know terrorist groups that have both the intent and the capability which is a crucial combination not just people who don't like us, but people who don't like us and have the ability to actually strike us. Um, you know, and we have a lot of over the horizon capabilities out there that let us keep tabs on those folks and, uh, you know, take action to foil plots if necessary. Um, you know, but we, we, we can still do that without uh, this idea that we need to be, you know, putting boots on the ground in places uh, because of the potential risk of, of uh, attacks back here. A lot of the, the history of what went wrong in the lead up to 9-11 uh, gets to what John was saying about how a lot of those, a lot of that came down to intelligence failures and sort of coordinating between information that was available to our government rather than the fact that we weren't physically in Afghanistan with conventional troops yet. What gives you the confidence that we've corrected those intelligence errors, though? I mean, one could say that as long as we have people who have volunteered to be in the military over there, that it is easier for those who would do us harm to target them rather than targeting civilians here. If we haven't corrected those intelligence errors, then that threat, that seems to be a, a rational concern. I think we definitely owe it to the people who are volunteering to, uh, you know, put their lives at risk on our behalf to make sure that we're only calling on them to do so when it's truly critical to advance our interests. And I think that's why that intelligence coordination is crucial so that we can, um, you know, call on those brave men and women in uniform willing to make those sacrifices uh, for sacrifices that are going to do the most to keep us safe. And, you know, we've definitely have seen a lot of improvements since 9-11, um, just with kind of more centralization and sort of forced information sharing within the intelligence community, um, with the sort of director of national intelligence position getting set up, um, and a lot of work sort of to ease the rivalry between the FBI and CIA, um, you know, and, and while there's certainly constitutional civil liberties issues that have definitely come about uh, with the Patriot Act and things like that. During our reaction to 9-11, um, that's not to say that while we should still take care to avoid abuses in that regard, that our government overall still hasn't gotten, or it has, has gotten much better uh, at making sure that information sharing is much more smooth. But that should be an ongoing process and also something that we do with trusted allies, too, um, in, in Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, countries like that. I've got close ties, too. Yeah, I would add to that that the desks, you know, at the desks at the CIA, the desks at the National Security Agency, the desks at Defense Intelligence Agency, the desks at the FBI, um, the desks at the various other 17 members of the intelligence community that have been so famously quoted, the desks at many of those agencies that attend to the Middle East, attend to, um, to Mideastern extremism, Islamic extremism, uh, and the, this particular threat, those desks have expanded 
significantly in the last 20 years. Uh, a, a lot of money went into expanding those desks and, and, and frankly, reinforcing what Tyler was talking about, those systems that do cross those channels to communicate better. So uh, I think 9-11, September 11, 2001, was a wake-up call to a lot of those agencies. And I think one of the things that you can count on is, is that anybody who works at, that at one of those agencies uh, since September 11th um, does not want to be the guy that compartmentalized information so much that they let another terrorist attack based abroad come overseas. So I, I would venture to guess that, that you know, that, that, that the kind of information hoarding that you saw at the, C, C, the CIA and at the, the, the National Terrorism Center back in the late 90s um, has, has been broken down. And, and we do see, you know, that we haven't seen those kind of foreign-based terror attacks succeed. Again, the terror attacks that have succeeded um, have been come about because there's a different safe haven, not a safe haven where you can send the 82nd Airborne or the First Special Forces Group to solve the problem. The new safe haven for terrorism is the cyber world. And I, I, there are some significant weaknesses, as we know from recent news, in the way that we secure ourselves in the cyber real, realm. And I would, I would venture to say that's where we should really focus um, most of our current security efforts right now in this country. One thing that it took my took the scales to fall off my eyes to realize is that there are actual actually believe it or not there are consequences to us being there also uh i w i wanted to believe you look we're just doing good over there we're there we're there because we need to be and we're helping folks and a lot of people are but there are consequences to those actions too and we have to recognize that one of those consequences may be that we are actually in our in our desire to eliminate the radicalism there we could be contributing to it we could be a motivating factor to its creation couldn't we absolutely i mean it's you know certainly true that of you know pretty much any any uh power with the the strike capabilities approaching what we have you know we go out of our way the most and, and rightly to avoid civilian casualties but at the same time you know that's just the reality of of warfare that that happens um and also just the reality of nation building often is just working with unsavory governments that alienate their people um and and sometimes are incentivized to do so by the moral hazard of knowing that uh u.s backing is going to remain for years to come and that that uh they don't have to necessarily win the same sort of legitimacy for their people knowing that uh the united states is, is propping them up and so kind of both from the the combat side of things but also just the the sort of political and social side of uh interventions abroad as, as you say the way there there are a lot of unintended side effects that can make us less safe in the long term so let's not forget that, you know, the September 11th attacks and the, 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 the bombings of the USS Cole and the, the, the African embassies that, that occurred before that, all sponsored by Al-Qaeda, uh, were prompted by America's presence in the Mideast, right? So, so as we think about, you know, how do we combat um, terrorism inspired by our presence in the Mideast, you know, we have to ask ourselves, um, does more presence in the Mideast, you know, create more opportunity or create new enemies? Uh, I mentioned earlier that... Um, we're talking about a counterterror campaign that is is often being fought with counterinsurgency tactics on the ground because once you get on the ground with big units 
infantry units, grunts on the ground. Once you get those, those, those folks out there doing counterinsurgency, they're coming in contact with people. And, you know, I, I, when I deployed to Afghanistan, I had to study counterinsurgency or coin as we called it. Um, we were doing it in Iraq before it was really a, 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 a legitimate tactical dogma or, or tenant of the U.S. Army. But, but I conducted coin counterinsurgency in both places. And it's, it's very, very easy to get wrong. And, and the, kind of the, the, the core tenets of a counterinsurgency strategy are protecting the people, getting them to believe in your legitimacy while taking out the real threat to them, their enemy. Um, the problem is, is that you're talking about a very blunt instrument when you're talking about an infantry battalion to be doing this. And, you know, I was, I was listening to a fantastic presentation today um, on a book, and this is, this is anecdotal stories, but it was a book by a guy named Wesley Morgan called The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Petch Valley. And he was talking about U.S. Army forces conducting counterinsurgency strategies and tactics in the Petch Valley in Afghanistan in 2011 and 12. And literally, they built a, a military base on a, a farmer's lumber yard, took his land away from him without compensating him. Um, you know, they were young American, 20, 21, 22 year olds, um, you know, in a foreign country, fearing for their lives at every moment. And things happen. You know, you kick in the wrong door and you injure or kill a family member uh, a car is confused and doesn't know what you're trying to signal it to do uh, it's coming at you too fast and you light up the car and, and i know people who've done this um, and you take out civilians sometimes they're they're iraqi or afghanistan civilians in those in those places but every time you do that you create new opportunities for for an enemy uh, and, and the fact of the matter is is that you know we've been propping up the government in afghanistan for for 20 years we've been propping up the government in iraq for for nigh on 18 17 years now now. Um, and our forces doing that are doing it under these counterinsurgency strategies. And it's really, really hard to get right, especially with these big army units. And again, um, you know, anecdotally, I don't have the numbers for it, but anecdotally, I've seen it done wrong and I've seen it create consequences and it creates enemies and it gives it gives the Taliban another reason to fight us. It gives ISIS in Iraq and Al Qaeda in Iraq and other groups other reasons to fight us when they're there. So you know, again, are we are we safer here when we're creating new enemies there? And it isn't just right now. It, it it's you're creating new enemies that could last ten, twenty, how many decades? That creates threats throughout most of our lifetimes. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about regarding Iraq? Well, I mean, Iraq certainly shows kind of the the the, the consequences of, of this idea that you know, if you want to fight them over there or if you're going to fight them over here you'll keep them from from attacking us here uh you know al-qaeda in iraq was not a thing in 2003 when we invaded iraq um you know i i have some some very unpleasant memories of of some of the war war crimes or genocidal crimes that i investigated against saddam hussein but but he certainly didn't have al-qaeda running around his country um, ISIS grew out of, you know, out of Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, and and presented a problem in the Middle East that grew out of our intervention in Iraq. Um, so we created waves of terrorists, some of whom, um, even if they didn't come here, certainly attempted to um, some of whom, you know, attracted recruits from America and from Western European nations whose ultimate goal was to come back here. So again, you know, there's another situation where, you know, when I was in Iraq in 2003, I firmly believed, oh, we're fighting them over here so my friends at home don't have to to suffer from it but it turns out you know at least in some cases we we were again we were creating new enemies 
as fast as we eradicated old ones. And when you're talking about 20 years or 18 years to be in these places doing it, you're creating a lot of enemies. And, you know, it's time, in my opinion, to take that pause and say, you know, maybe we're really not killing them over here and, and keeping them from coming and getting us. And one of the, uh, the downsides of, I guess, this sort of self-licking ice cream cone of, of creating new enemies in the process of, of trying to defeat other ones um, is also just the unintended consequences of some of our, our especially in Iraq, our training equip mission. Um, think about all the equipment we gave the Iraqi army that was then uh, seized by ISIS when they sort of melted in the face of, of the sort of slightest conventional offensive challenge in, in Mosul, for instance. There was a, a, a conflict armament research center did a, a survey of captured ISIS ammunition from the summer of 2014 when it was kind of that original high tide and we didn't know how things were gonna play out. And I wanna say about a, a fifth of the recovered uh, uh, captured munitions were U.S. made, um, you know, which indicates that they were they were captured from Iraqi army units. And so we have to be careful, uh, you know, even when we think we're supporting partners, are they the kind that, you know, even even with years of training, could uh, be, you know, just run by a government that's fragile enough that uh, we could really actually be ending up supplying even worse enemies in the future. And if you look if you look at the successful terrorist attacks that have occurred in the United States and in Western Europe uh, since 2001, you know, many of them were inspired by ISIS's fight to, to survive against the U.S. or the Taliban's fight to survive against the U.S. I mean, if you look at, say, the San Bernardino attacks inspired by by, you know, by the Taliban uh, and, and their ongoing war with us at the time. Uh, so, again, you know, fighting ISIS to keep ISIS, uh, you know, in its caliphate in, in northern Iraq and, and eastern Syria, is, is that really fighting them there to keep them from coming here when what they're doing is they're using some of the most sophisticated Internet propaganda tools there are to help folks in, in Western Europe, to help folks in the United States and then the rest of the, the, the Western and developed world to self-radicalize because they're seeing their brothers fight. Are we, again, are we not building more enemies, inspiring more terrorists faster than we're, we're taking out the ones that are actually, you know, waving AK-47 somewhere in the Mideast? This will not be the first time I use Thomas Sowell in the podcast. It's not going to be the last time. I am slowly trying to replace all of my previous thinking with his thinking. It's a long process. But there are three questions that he tends to ask whenever he's discussing with some, you know, an issue with someone. And I'm, I'm thinking of this issue and one of his questions comes to mind. And that's what, what hard evidence do you have? You know, the, the, the assertion is if we don't fight them there, We'll have to fight them here. What hard evidence do you have? Well, they, they would say, well, 9-11, you, you look at that. You would respond, well, a lot of the consequences for that was because we were already there. Uh, there was a lot being said back then that this was all about the fact that they hated our freedom. But when you listen to what they said, that wasn't what it was about at all. It was about the fact that we were over there. Is that incorrect? I mean, I wouldn't be under any illusions that the sort of society that uh, many of these 
these uh, folks we've been fighting envision as the ideal one is pretty antithetical to a lot of our classical liberal values. But at the same time, right, I think in particular with the group like the Taliban, it's very explicitly and by their own statements focused on uh, getting the U.S. out rather than more unlimited aims of, of uh, uh, at, you know, taking away our freedoms, right? They, they may have a, a regressive view from our perspective of how Afghanistan should work, but what motivates uh, them and, and drives their recruiting is the continued U.S. presence. I mean, just like the, the Russians for the Mujahideen, uh, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and whatnot. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that there is a a stream of um, you know radical Islamic thinking, is, Islamic extremism, um, you know that that exists across several different sects or communities within the Islamic world. Wahhabism, um, you know, um, Sharia supremacy. Uh, there, there are schools of thought that are very antithetical to our values. Um, there are folks who don't want us in the Middle East. Uh, but again, if if we think that gee, the first reason that that attack happened was because uh, someone with, with money and planning capability uh, didn't like the fact that we were stationed in, in, in his home nation, Saudi Arabia, and inspired others to do it. How many more people have we inspired um, to, to fight us at some future point, as you, as you pointed out? You know, the evidence suggests that, um, that the Taliban, as Tyler was saying, have probably learned their lesson. Um, and, and partnering with al-Qaeda back in 2000, 2001 to, to allow them to kind of take Sharia supremacy and, and, and radical Islam uh, global is probably a lesson that they've learned. Um, my, my guess is that if, if we complete our withdrawal here in, in the next month, whether it happens in July or it happens in September, if we complete U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in the time we're talking about, the Taliban will, will, will never want to open themselves up to the U.S. coming in and throwing their government out again. And in fact, if you think about it, you know, um, our, our goal in Afghanistan was to, to punish um, those who committed the September 11th attacks and to remove those who, por- who supported them. Um, we accomplished that within a relatively short period of time. Um, we were capable of accomplishing that, in fact, uh, uh, before the September 11th attacks. And again, with some intelligence failures and frankly, some policy decision-making failures um, that happened in the, in the late 90s or the year 2000, um, we decided not to to take out the Taliban leadership when we had the opportunity to do it. But again, those were, those were over-the-horizon counter-terror operations that we were talking about. And when we failed to do that, we found ourselves deeply embedded in a, in a project driven by folks who deeply believed at the time that we had the ability to reshape nations like Afghanistan and Iraq into flourishing democracies. And uh, you want to talk about, you know, Thomas Sowell and show me the evidence. The evidence is, is there that we completely failed to do that. So then it becomes a question of, well, if we're going to fight them over there, does that mean that we're going to permanently occupy Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that, Somalia? Uh, South Sudan, Yemen, for the rest of our lives and our children's lives and their grandchildren's lives, and, and I, I don't think that's I don't think that's an acceptable outcome. Um, I, I yeah, I think uh, what what John was 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 saying just now about uh, some failed political decision making too in the late '90s uh, goes back to the the point we were making earlier about lessons learned um, and and why we don't need to be as fearful of potential safe havens these days, right? 
even back in the 1990s when we had uh, significantly less well-developed drone capabilities and over-the-horizon strike methods, we still had the capability several times to launch a strike on bin Laden's location because of a CIA manhunt that happened after the Nairobi bombings. We were able to track down his location multiple times without boots on the ground in Afghanistan just from clandestine operations, and we didn't have the political will at that time. And I don't think any president since 9-11 is ever going to have you know the kind of cold feet that were just a fact of life uh, under a very different set of circumstances in the 1990s. Um, so that's, I think, another reason with our even greater capabilities now of, you know, uh, predator drones, reaper drones, global hawks that can, you know, loiter for a day and a half above target at 60,000 feet. You know, I, I think we're, we're much better positioned to do whatever we need to if it truly is a a situation of someone who we know is plotting attacks against the United States and has the capability to do to do so. One of Sol's other questions that he asks is at what cost? And so it goes back to if we're going to stay there and we're going to do all these things, what's the cost? And I'm talking cost financially because one thing we have talked about before is that the biggest threat to our national security isn't Islamic terrorism. I would say it isn't China, it isn't Russia. It's the fact that we currently have a $28 trillion national debt. And how much are we spending right now in Afghanistan and Iraq? I, I saw it was like $2 trillion, what, a month annually? How much is that? I think the, uh, the total cost, Tyler's got the numbers um, locked tight, but I think the total cost for Afghanistan is still estimated. Afghanistan alone is $1 trillion. The greater global war on terror is somewhere in the vicinity of $6.5 trillion. So if you think about, if you think about that, um, somewhere along the lines of one-fifth, 20% of our national debt is based on this global war on terror. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's, it's uh, been two tri- about $2 trillion to date, and that's you know, not just counting the direct war costs, but you know, taking into account some of these unseen things that people don't think about, like additional debt interest that we've accrued, additional... Uh, VA obligations uh, from folks who come back with their uh, visible and invisible wounds, um, you know, and just larger, larger than otherwise uh, DOD budget increases going up. Um, and, you know, and we've got uh, annual direct costs for each new year in the tens of billions. And in terms of keeping America safe, you know, there's a there are opportunity costs for that in defense alone. Um, we could be supporting modernization for uh, you know the air force and navy that would be more useful to peacefully deter China and the Pacific, which uh, can do a lot more to keep America safe longer term and for decades to come. You know, or at home we can be using that to grow the economy and try to pay down some of this this. Uh, mind-bogglingly huge debt like you were talking about Dwayne. yeah i would i would counter the you know well aren't we fighting them over there so that we don't have to fight them here with well why are we spending it over there can't we spend it here good point absolutely what is the alternative then it sounds like what you're saying is the alternative to us having boots on the ground then would be to rely on our intelligence industries and then once we have identified a 
solid target who means to do us harm and we've checked all the boxes for a reason to take action then we be more strategic in our application of violence our application of force and really target those who mean to do us harm is that the alternative then I think so. And to go back to kind of what Tyler was talking about with, with intelligence and over-the-horizon intelligence capabilities, and obviously he, he prepped with some of the same material I did looking at, at drones and, uh, and platforms. But, but on top of that, you know, you, and I, I say this because, again, we're trying to address that, you know, aren't we fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them here uh, argument. And I hear from many in the military um, intelligence security community, government officials, uh, f- current or former military officials often saying, well, you know, the fact that we're there gives us this intelligence advantage. We're on the ground. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, when it comes to signal intelligence, imagery intelligence, uh, all of those, those technical capabilities, um, we, we can do it from here. And when it comes to human intelligence, you know, we're, 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 we're closer to, to what's going on there, but there's more noise when, when you're conducting a war in somebody's neighborhood, and so you're getting less signal. Um, again, we, as Tyler pointed out, we were able to track bin Laden's movements in Afghanistan prior to 2001 <clears throat> when he, he wasn't quite so sure he was on our target set, uh, and we did that without having boots on the ground. In fact, you know, folks in the intelligence community will tell you that, that you know, being, you know, having large fobs and a large military footprint in places can actually interfere with, with even with human intelligence gathering, right? Folks are more apt to, to be friendly to, um, to someone if they don't feel like they're knocking down their vineyard, you know, tearing up their crop, putting their kids' lives in danger, um, you know, and, and frankly, staring at their women, which is, you know, uh, a terrible offense in the Islamic world. Um, it, it, in some ways, we're making it harder for the intelligence community, not easier. We're giving them more things to watch uh, and making it harder for them to handle hear things that stand out. Thank you once again to John Burns and Tyler Koteski for taking the time to talk to us today about the safe haven myth. If you have any questions about this issue or any of the other issues we've discussed on Insight to Action, please send me an email at i2a at afphq.org. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.